Welcome to Writer Spark, the podcast with tips and tricks all about fiction writing. I'm Melissa Bourbon, and today we are talking about lessons from the writer's room with Ellen Byron. So grab a cup of something tasty, settle in, and ignite your writer spark. Okay, hi everyone. I'm Melissa Bourbon from Writer Spark, and we are here with a writing uh, craft chat with Ellen Byron. Welcome. Hi. So I am so impressed, first of all, with all of the things that you have done and all of your series. So you're an Agatha Award winner, a Lefty Award winner, and you have two series and a third one coming out Uh this month. Yes, actually tomorrow. It launches tomorrow, June 7th. Oh. And um uh and also the Cajun Country Mysteries, unfortunately, they came they came to an end, but I'm hoping to do a, a kind of not really a spin-off, but another series set in Pelican that at least some of those other characters can visit. That you would do that indie or are you going to do that? No, uh my my goal right now is uh, I'm talking to the original publisher, Crooked Lane, and then if it doesn't work out, I might go wide and or maybe go indie. I don't know, we'll see. Mm-hmm. You know, it also depends where uh, what's going on with these other two series. So I won't know about that for a while. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. Cool. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you are an award-winning playwright, and I love mm-hmm. this a non-award-winning TV writer of comedies like Wings. I remember that so oh, well. Thank you. Just shoot me and the Fairly Odd Parents. We loved the Fairly Odd Parents in my house when my kids were littler. Oh, that's great. Um, 200 articles or more for national magazines mm-hmm. and then working for Martha Stewart. That's crazy. Let's hear the Martha Stewart. Well, um, I actually worked for her when I was straight out of college and she was just, uh, transitioning. She had been actually a stockbroker, believe it or not. She was one of the first women stockbrokers and she used her money to start her, uh, catering business. And in the early eighties, I was a cater waiter for her, you know, and they were taking all these pictures and wasn't paying attention. And then all of a sudden one day, this copy of entertaining arrives at my door with a thank you note. And, um, and there I was, you know, holding a tray of hors d'oeuvres next to Martha and a picture. And then there are a couple of little pictures of me um, inside that, you know, you'd have to know me to see. And suddenly <laughs> there was a, a juggernaut for Martha. And a lot, I haven't talked to her in a long time, but I interviewed her once in like the 90s um, for I did the My First Job column for Glamour magazine. And uh, she was, I love Martha. Uh, you know, she, yeah, that was really when she was just becoming like the national uh, personality she is now, even though the books have put her on the map, but it was like that transition um, to just mega Martha. And um, but she could tell me what happened to a lot of the people I worked with because it was the eighties and you know AIDS in New York, and so we lost a bunch of people. And and you know, it was just great. And I knew her um, her siblings, you know, and sadly two of them have passed away since then um, for young younger than they should have, and for you know kind of sad reasons. So um, but. I learned a lot from Martha and I actually, you know, every so often I put it to use, like, especially in the catering hall series, which is, um, I write under the name Maria Rico. you know, my character in the first book, Here Comes the Body, she does an offsite um, uh, event. And I was like, okay, how do we do that? And I literally, you know, went through the, my bank of memories in my head to remember how we transported from Martha's house on Turkey, that famous house on Turkey Hill road mm-hmm. um, and transported from, you know, we go there and we do the, all the prep and then we'd have to like box it and then, you know, go down. And some of us were in the van and others just took the train and met up at the, like if the event was in the city at the, you know, wherever the event was. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I, it, it's come in handy and I've thought, you know, okay, I, I've written a couple of blog posts like WW, you know, MD, what would Martha do? Like I happen. Mm-hmm 
appetizers. <laughs> you know, we take these little red potatoes, those new potatoes, and we slice them in half and cut the bottom so they were a little standing. And then you scoop them out and you put stuff in them. So I've used that for, um, you know, I've used a couple of the things I learned from her that she was kind of the first person to do in a big public way. Um, and some of the recipes I've had to include in my books. How fun. You've yeah. So many cool experiences. And I really I, have. Yeah. And I see all of your writing workshops that you do, adding humor and yeah. outlining and setting. So we could talk about anything, uh, but we'll have to we'll have to have you back. Um, but what I want to talk about today is mm -hmm. your experience in the writer's room, which I think sounds so fascinating. And then how you bring that into your fiction writing, you know, how we can make connections and and you know, helping aspiring writers who might be watching and writers of any stage who might be watching and can, you know, get some tricks. I think one of the most important things I learned, there are a couple of things I learned, a couple of them I learned the hard way. Um, one of them learned um, was uh, to never present a problem without a possible solution. Because mm -hmm. if you're in the writer's room, they, they don't need to hear what's wrong unless you've got a, a way to fix it. Now, you may not have the right way, but if you present, uh, you know, um, a possibility that can like lead to other possibilities or get people thinking. And I bring this up like in terms of when you're getting notes from a developmental editor or your um, your traditional published editor, you know, because you get all those notes and there are things you may not agree with. Um, and but it may be that the note is right. You just have to find the solution to the note. And that's another thing I learned in the writer's room is that sometimes I worked with showrunners who would take like um, uh, an executive's, you know, the executive on the show, the the network or the studio's executive, literal note, literally, and um, and because they wanted to please them. But the thing is, if the show doesn't work, that executive isn't saying, "Oh well, you they tried, they took my note." There, it's all on you. So the thing is, you have to find a way to take the note that addresses the meat of the note, but doesn't necessarily, um, you know, tear apart a script, which happened on several shows I worked on and was like, so, you know, and then you're back to square one because a lot of times, you know, it, it just is a disaster. Um, so I remember when we were, uh, I had a writing partner for TV for most of it, not all of it, but um, we were doing a pilot for NBC and the executive, we were working with David Nevins, who I absolutely adored. And he went on, he runs Showtime and, and more than that now. And he's, he was a great executive. Um, and he gave us, he said, I love your pilot. I just have a note. We won't be here long. And he gave us a note. And I thought, oh, oh no, that <laughs> note he gave us to address it we would have to throw out the entire second act. So okay. I thought for a minute, and instead of going to, yes, David, yes, we'll take your note. I said, okay, we hear you, but here's the deal. You know, we can take that note. The problem is we'll have to throw out the second act. And you said, you really like everything. And he was like, well, no, I don't want to do that. I said, okay, well then let's look at, you know, and we just started talking. And instead of being there for a very little time, we were there for two hours, but uh -huh. we came up with a solution that um, meant that addressed his note, which was a legitimate note, but did not sacrifice for it. And um, so that was one of the most important things I learned. And another thing I learned uh, that was really, I learned the hard way. Um, I, I was once, we were shooting an Ebb Wings episode, and I actually talk about this in other places, but um, one of the actresses on it, who was a guest star, was like flitting around the way they those actors, actresses and actors do sometimes. <laughs> and she, in her flitting, she, she was like, stream of consciousness talking and she goes oh, do you listen or do you wait to talk and then she of course did listen and just went off on something else but that really stayed with me because i realized i was not a listener i was a wait to talker and um 
and it was detrimental to my contributing in the room in the writer's room and it was and it's proved to be you know and it's um and I think it's detrimental in general. If you're not listening, you're not open to experiences or to hearing the other persons. If you're just waiting to talk, you mm -hmm. know, you're just blocking out so much. And um, and I think also people get annoyed, you know, because you've been in those conversations where someone's just talking at you. Yeah. So I feel like that's really applicable. It was applicable in the room. It's applicable to my writing. It's applicable in life. Um, you know, uh, and it's hard because in a room, especially I came up in the nineties and the nineties, I, I always joke that if I wrote a, an autobiography or memoir, it would be called, they have their woman, my life in uh, TV, because I can't tell you the amount of times, you know, I'd say to an Asian, Hey, this so-and-so is staffing. And they go, well, they have their woman. Um, so because <laughs> wow. they would have like a token woman or two on staff. And so you'd be on these staffs that had literally a dozen guys, you know, these huge staffs. And, you know, you're competing to be heard. Um, and I also said, I said, look, you know, when, when we first started working, you know, and you're in a room with, ten, you know, 12 guys and the energy is very different. Um, I said, at first they heard their girlfriends, then they heard their wives. When they started hearing their mothers, we stopped working. Um, and cause comedy is much more ageist than the drama. I mean, you, I, I see obituaries for guys who are 70 years old and I say guys, um, 70 years old and said he was working on such and such show. I'm like, wow, good for him. Um, so, you know, so that was interesting. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, that's, that's um, crazy. Yeah. yeah. That's, a, that's an interesting point about comedy being ageist because there are so many expressions and things that, you know, Gen X's and Gen Z's and all these yes. Gen people <laughs> say that are like, wait, what does that mean? You know? And well, you know, the thing is, and and this is the reason it's, is there's some legitimacy to the, well, what it is, is you have to keep your humor topical, um, your sense of humor, because humor does what was funny. And I talk about this in my workshops, you know, I show this crazy, weird picture that we all go, uh, well, it was from a guy in vaudeville a hundred years ago. So they were like, oh, that's hilarious. Mm -hmm. You know, humor changes. And I always give the example, Preston Sturgis writes fabulous, funny dialogue for the 1940s. Um, he has a great line that I quote all the time that I love because it's one of my favorite lines um, where uh, it's in the, la my, the Lady Eve and Henry Fonda walks into the cruise ship, you know, dining room or something. And Barbara Stanwyck says, looks at him, says, every Jane in the room has given him the thermometer. Oh my <laughs> God, that is such a brilliant line. But to say it now, you go, oh, so you're, you must be writing a, a set in the, in the 40s. Yeah, yeah. So there is some legitimate legitimacy to humor because it really if you look at humor through the different you know decades um it absolutely changes um but then it is on us to keep our sense of humor current and i've met writers who are 30s who are you know 30 and old farts and writers who are 65 and have kept their humor current and could work on a show right now so you know that's and and one thing i another you know tip i i learned in the writer's room um and then is, is you try to avoid reference jokes and some series like Murphy Brown and stuff, they, they lived on reference jokes. Well, the problem with that is they date. Yeah. And so, you know, Murphy Brown, as far as I know, didn't really do very well in syndication because, you know, you're referencing people in like, they're a Bob Dole joke, you yeah, know, yeah. They, was hit it out of the Topical park in, 19, moment. Yeah. in 80, 88 or something. But now people are going, who? 
So, yeah. um, you know, so I, so I really try to stay away from that in my writing, um, That's because no point. one in, in literally in 10 years, no one may know who Justin Bieber is or they, sorry, you know, <laughs> or reading your book, they'll go, Oh, so this was written in, you know, 2020. Right. So. Right. And I think, um, PC humor has really made an impact. You know, what was okay 10 years ago is not okay now. Oh, well, you know, it's so interesting because when I were rooms were rough. I used to say it's like, it's like tail, it's like a tail hook convention. Of course, that's a reference that people are going, what was that? <laughs> um, you know, uh, when you're working in a room, the guy, guy's sense of humor is very different. I mean, that's another thing. Um, and, and there was some, I remember I was working on, there was a day in wings where the guys started talking about bachelor, about bachelor parties. And one of the guys said, uh, you know, you ladies might need to leave the room. And I was so pissed off because I was like, you know, and I didn't say this and I wish I had, um, because you couldn't say these things then, you'd be fired um, to say, if you think we need to leave the room, then this is a conversation you should be having in the room. And I stuck around. I mean, mm -hmm. I heard things, my husband, I, I say this, I've said this before that I would bring home language I heard in the writer's room and my husband would be go, oh my God, I was on, I played ice hockey in high school and college and I've never heard the language you're bringing home. Really? Um, no. But now it's like, that was like a release for these guys, mm -hmm. you know? So I, I really wonder how they get how, how things get written now in the writer's room. Yeah, so. such a different environment. And, and then you what know, it's put on the episodes. Too. I mean, I just put a joke on Twitter um, that I couldn't help myself. I had to put, and it's like so, you know, it was like so. Um, they were, you know, on uh, Andrea Bocelli at the uh, party at the palace singing, you know, for the Queen's 70th Jubilee. He's saying the, the, um, uh, the aria from Nessun Dorma, which is just gorgeous. But I couldn't help my, my, TV inappropriate instincts kicked in. I wrote, Oh, it's a good thing he didn't sing his most famous song, Time to Say Goodbye. So <laughs> you know, I was like, and I said, Sorry, sometimes my sitcom instincts kick in and I can't help it. You yeah. know. Well, all of that applies to writing too. I have a friend, Diane Kelly, who writes also, and she has a wry sense of humor, and humor is a big part of her books. And she talks about how she has to be extra careful now. She feels like she has to be extra careful now in, in how she uses humor because she doesn't want to offend. And it's, you know, it's so easy to offend these days. Well, you know, and, and a lot of that is, is legit. And it's like, you know, my daughter now, I have pictures of her in her Halloween costume. And she, for camp one day when they were honoring artists, she was dressed as Frida Kahlo. And I was like, oh, it's so cute. She goes, mom, that's cultural appropriation. Yeah. <laughs> and I got um, on my first, uh, new book, Vintage Cookbook by uh, Book Thief, I got diversity and inclusion notes, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I'd never gotten those before. And it was a bit of a wake up call, you know, because I'm, I consider myself, you know, I'm very progressive. Um, and, and it was like, oh, but it was, you know, it was really, really helpful. And I really, and I've kept it in mind when I was writing the second book, which will be out next year, uh, called Wind and Dined in New Orleans. And I didn't get any of those notes. What were so, some of the comments? Do you remember? Well, that I was using black to to uh, to connote skin color more than I was using different ways of saying white, and so, like that's a, one example. And mm. at first, I was like, and I thought, you know what? I read books cozies by writers of color, and I there's one I don't want to name her because it's not fair to her, but she never mentions what race her her people are. She doesn't feel a need to mm -hmm. denote this character is black or this character is white. And I thought that is such a great lesson because, you know, with any writing, you should be able, and this is another thing about, you know, it's developing the language of each character and we should be able to know 
you know, get instinct, instinctual clues as to what race or where they grew up or what education they have, they level, level they have through how they behave and how they talk, Right. you know, and with the best comedy, um, each, each person has their own comic language. And the examples I give of this, well, wings that, you know, you could identify which character speaking by what jokes you wrote for them, a Bing Bang Theory, Will and Grace. Those are great examples of character specific census of humor. And so it made me really in the new book, you know, I thought, okay, well, I have to work hard and make it through clearer through um, their dialogue, how they speak, you know, um, what I need to communicate or how they relate to other characters. Um, so it's a really great writing lesson. And there was only one time um, that I said, please keep the reference to skin color here in terms of a, a person of color, because I said, I want, and I said, put a little picture of it. He said, he's supposed to look like Jesse Williams, who's like this incredibly gorgeous actor. Mm -hmm. um, so I put a picture of him there and said, and they were like, okay. So, <laughs> but yeah, the best comedy. And again, this is a, le a lesson, you know, and when you're writing plays, going back to my very first writing experience, a dramaturg um, they tell you they want to, they should be able to know who's speaking without looking at the character name, because that character has its own unique language and way of talking. Yeah. And that's a great lesson to learn. And I think it's really difficult to do that in writing, especially when you're new to writing, if you haven't had the experience of really trying to make your characters very individualistic. Yeah. And it's harder, you know, I do find it's harder to do, um, you know, in my books than it is, you know, in TV or, or theater. And I don't know why that is. Maybe it's because it's, you know, they're, um, I don't really know why, but it is a little harder. I mean, in humor, you know, and the other thing is we talk about how it changes. Well, you know, if you look at shows built in this, uh, built, <laughs> building this group, um, you know, made in the 70s or even the 60s, you know, there were far less jokes and like, it was like the rule of thumb technically was one joke a page. Well, that went to three jokes a page. And then literally, like you look at a Will and Grace episode and there is like, you have to go for pages before you find a single straight line. Hmm. Um, you know, and there were also like, there were characters, there were actors where you simply couldn't find that they just weren't funny. That became the the joke of fat, fat husband, skinny wife, mm -hmm. you know, where the wife was just like, you know, and they were casting pretty and it was, uh, they were always like, oh, it's hard to find funny, pretty, which was like, not untrue. So when they found funny, pretty, they they would like milk it and develop a show for the person, you know? So, um, so, you know, it's also like in our, in our mysteries. Okay. Well you have, sometimes your protagonist is, I'll give an example, an old timey example of Judd Hirsch and taxi, who was not the funniest character in that show, but he was the center. And so he was often, his humor was almost re often reactive to the mm -hmm. other characters around him, but you had to find the funny way he reacted. You know, and I'll find that even in my, um, you know, uh, in my protagonists for my mysteries. Okay, well, let's make sure what, how I don't want my protagonist to fall into the role of just reacting in a to someone else's humor. So what are the characteristics I can give her, because all my protagonists are women, um, to make her, give her a funny attitude, even if it's not, even if her line isn't funny per se, you know, I can write her reaction into, um, you know, the, the, the like I have in, um, my fourth uh, catering hall mystery, which I read as Marie Dorico, which will be out next year. Um, it's called Four Parties and a Funeral, and um, it involves a wedding, but they're also shooting a, uh, a reality show called The Dons of Dittmars Boulevard. 
Um, and there's one, you know, there's one uh, moment where uh, they go to the, the wedding is going to be at this, uh, the bachelor uncle of the girl that this, uh, you know, a mobster son is marrying. She's very waspy Connecticut. And so, um, so it's this old, beautiful, but kind of slightly shabby house. And my protagonist, Mia says to the character, he says, oh, it must've been so cool growing up with a gay uncle. And the other girl goes, oh, he's not gay. He's kind of what we call Connecticut straight which is like a version of California straight out here. And so my protagonist is like, hmm. And she was like, yeah, she goes, yeah, I, I don't. And so I could write into her, she couldn't say anything, but ah, but yeah. I could write into her description. You know, she didn't think that would, description would fly back in Queens. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, but if you're doing a sitcom, you you would cut to a reaction shot of the character. Huh, you know, something. So you get the laugh on the reaction shot. Yeah, and it seems to me that, you know, in sitcoms like that, each character is a little bit over the top, which makes them very identifiable. And it's hard. Yeah, I think that you, when you have these quirky cast of characters in cozy mysteries or in mysteries in particular, your sleuth is sort of often a straight man with these quirky characters. Yes. But, and you have to be careful that they don't steal the exactly. show. But exactly. And that's why you have to find the comic attitude for your for your protagonist, um, mm -hmm. your sleuth. But the other thing I'll tell you is that if you, you know, there in TV, there's multicam and, si and single camera. And uh, that describes how the shows are filmed. Been, and multicam, Wings was an example of multicam, and that was filmed before a live audience. And so there are people, you know, laughing and you use the actual laughter. It's mm -hmm. not, if a single camera shows like a lot of the 60s shows were single camera, but they would use, you know, canned laughter. We didn't. Um, we would sometimes, you know, you edit out a weird laugh maybe, mm -hmm. or you use another, a laugh in one place from, you know, if you need a little coverage, you'll use that. Um, but now, single camera is shot like a movie and you have to learn to write differently for single camera than multi-camera. Like um, I'm trying to give like Veep was a great example of a single camera show that was very hard, heavy jokes, but they didn't read really, like stop the action jokes because um, they were really, really in character, um, you know, modern. And, and you also needed, you have, you know, to justify a single camera, you have to justify why you are shooting it that way because it's way more expensive. And also, as an executive said to us when we were pitching a single camera shoulder, she goes, that's fine as long as it's not an excuse is as long as it's not an excuse not to be funny. And that was very because a lot of single cameras in the past have been like, just not that funny, mm -hmm. um, which is, again, I go to Veep. I mean, Modern Family is an interesting show because while it was shot single camera, it, it that show also, I feel, could have worked as a multicam. Um, you know, there are a lot of episodes which really were very interior, um, but, you know, they felt they got more out of it as a single camera show. Um, you know, and I worked, I know a lot of the people on that show, I worked with them, so, and it was a great show, you know, mm -hmm. but that's interesting. So, um, I got, I got off topic. Sorry. Well, that's okay. Does that translate to point of views? Like how does that translate into the book? Yes, it translates for me. I always feel like um, my, uh, the catering hall series feels like it's much more almost multicam sitcom. It's much jokier. Um, the characters are a little broader. Um, I have less emphasis on describing setting. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I do a little, but it's really very, it's, I think it's like pure, the most purely comic of my series. Um, then, uh, but the Cajun countries and, and the Vintage cookbooks, I spend more time, you know, away from the jokes to establish setting. And I, I describe it, I'll say, I feel like that, 
Catering Hall is my TV show and um, the uh, Cajun Country and Finnish Cookbook are, well, Cajun Country is a, my movie and, mm -hmm. and Finnish Cookbook is somewhere in between. Um, mm -hmm. But I do spend more time, and I think it's true, I spend more time in creating setting and atmosphere in those books. And I think, you know, you can look at like um, Libby Klein writes a great funny series, uh, right. the Poppy McAllister series. And that's really very comedy driven. You know, she doesn't, she doesn't spend a lot of time, you know, she will paint a lovely picture, you know, but it, she won't go to the lengths like I will, let's say in the Cajun countries where I really want people to feel the, uh, you know, feel that muggy heat and like the mm -hmm. rain is yeah. coming and, you know, kind of like the Tennessee Williams that I ape in those books because he's my favorite playwright. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not at all. To, I love Libby's series. It's a compliment to her. So, um, so it's interesting. I think if you are a reader, you know, we're all readers, you know, well, you can read a series that's, uh, that's considered a comic series and look at the balance of humor to setting, um, you know, description and, and see where the balance is and where it falls. Mm hmm. So interesting. What a creative and interesting life you have led with all of these different pathways. So do you miss working with film and plays? And all you know that? what? I, I don't miss theater as much as I used to. Um, and, and TV, I, I don't miss the hours because especially when you're working on a, a multicam show, oh, uh, the hours are brutal because you're, you've got so many trains running. You've got like at, unless in one week when you're in production, you are um, working on the script that is in production. So you have to go to rehearsals and rewrite. You are breaking the story for a script that is going to go into production. You're working on a script that's going to be going into production next to have the draft of it. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's post-production. So you're, you know, getting the, doing the editing on the, you know, and, and so, and with, you know, when you're in production, there are all these other things the showrunners have to do. And, and a good showrunner will designate because they trust, they've hired a staff they trust mm -hmm. and other showrunners will not because they don't trust their, you know, they feel like they need to have a, you know, the micromanage and mm -hmm. you're there all hours every day. So I don't miss that, but I would love, the one thing I, ha I never did um, was work staff on a, a light hour drama. And so mm -hmm. I would love to do that. And I'd love to see one of my, um, my uh, you know, shows go to, go to, you know, one of my book series go to show. Go no, to wouldn't show. that be great? So, you know, we'll see. I, so far that hasn't happened. Okay. So we're going to wrap up. I want to thank you so much for being here, but before we go, can you like condense some of what you were talking about into maybe like three tips for Okay, I'm going to give you the first tip is the easiest tip. And I tell this all the time, put the funny word at the end of the sentence. Okay, if you have the word, I always give the example, oh, I, the word, um, you know, whatever the word is, snuggly. That's a word that I used in a joke once. So if you bury the, the word snuggly, you'll lose the joke. End on the joke. End on the funny word. Um, watch out for reference jokes. Try not to use them because they will date even using Facebook because Facebook may not be around in five years. So watch out for references that dates your material. Um, and look at play with status. Status is something I like to tell people about um, because, for example, uh, I'll give you a very quick example. Frazier, the most high status person on that show was the dad who sat in that rickety old chair that was had you know duct tape covering it up and his sons were well educated and well spoken but he called them on their crap and yeah, so yeah. he was the most so so, so he like had a hierarchy you know yeah. he didn't have the high status job of being a radio host so he was not technically as high status but that's what made him funny so play with status like a high status person who's constantly put down 
by someone who's technically lower status, there's a lot of room for humor there. Oh, that's such an interesting point. I've never really noticed or thought about it in that way. So thank you for that. And actually, I have a novella I've just written uh, for a project, and I have two references, and I was debating, should I leave them in or should I not? And now for sure I'm taking them out. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, my work is done. Yes, yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here, Ellen. You hang around for just a second. Thank you so much for being here and for these awesome tips. Really well, thank you for it. having me. Bye, everyone. Bye. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Come back for more tips and tricks about fiction writing and learn more about our online courses at www.writersparkacademy.com. I'm Melissa Bourbon. Thank you for listening. And until next time, happy writing.